All right, let us pray together, please. Father, thank you for a time to set aside and a place in which to meet and people with whom to fellowship and a message from your word that we ask you would take and uh, shape us with. Lord, we know that even now there is an enemy who uh, will actively seek to distract from the things that we are trying to do even now and especially distract from the significance of what it is you have to say to us. And so we pray that you would uh, bind him and keep him at a distance from us not just during this time, but as we seek to live out the things that we think that you have for us here. So we ask for your help. Uh, we pray you'd show us uh, what you are like and show us how we should respond. In Jesus' name, amen. I came across um, an interview this past week, and the topic of the interview posed this question. How do youth leaders disciple a media-informed generation? It seemed like an appropriate and interesting topic for my purposes. And so I listened to this brief conversation, and these couple of guys who were chatting with one another pointed out that all people really, but especially teens, are being constantly informed by something. You are constantly having messages given to you, sent to you, designed for you, packaged for you, and uh, you are either consciously or subconsciously receiving them, maybe even seeking them out, but, but maybe you're just um, receiving them uh, passively depending on, on how they are coming at you, whether it is in advertisements or shows and movies or through media and social media or uh, cultural leaders, political leaders, all kinds of people who have this, these messages that they're trying to get across to you. And the way that these guys in this conversation put it is that they said that we, and especially our teens, so you guys, are being constantly indoctrinated. That was the word that they used. Uh, meaning that you are being not just, you're not just someone to whom they can advertise, you are someone to whom they can get you to think a certain way and believe a certain way and even act a certain way or consume certain things or buy into certain messages. So they are literally, the world is shaping the way that you think, the way that you believe, uh, what you get excited about, what you participate in. So you are being indoctrinated. And then another word that they use is that you are being catechized, which is, which is really just an older way of saying that uh, you, are, you are being formed to believe something. Uh, you, you're receiving this information so that, so that you will uh, buy into it. So I made a couple of conclusions as I listened, uh, mainly that the church is really kind of disadvantaged is at a disadvantage in this area. So what we as your youth leaders and what we as your church are trying to do, and we don't shy away 
from saying that we also, in a sense, are trying to indoctrinate you. We are trying to convince you of things. We're trying to catechize you and shape the way that you think and, and so forth. But we're at a disadvantage because, for one, uh, we spend much less time with you and you spend much less time with us here in a setting like this than you do receiving those other messages. So whereas you're receiving messages from the world even constantly, maybe even now as some of you look at screens, uh, we only have a limited amount of time that we can, can do that. Um, and that's assuming that you'll take a break from looking at your screens long enough to hear what we have to say. The other conclusion that I made, the other reason why we're at a little bit of a disadvantage is because I don't have a new message to give you. Pretty much every week, I or another of your leaders come up here and we say basically the same things to you. We are giving you a very old message. Now, we can give you that message from all over Scripture, but it's nothing new. It's nothing, let's say, um, uh, you know, what the world would call exciting Right? The world is always trying to give you a new message, or at least a repackaged message. We're just here saying, hey, open this really old book with us, and let's see why, this, we, you know, why we think this is helpful, why we think this is worth buying into. So I'm going to ask you now to take your really old book, your Bible, and open where we have been for uh, about a month now, and go to the Old Testament book of, the, of Second Chronicles, And you know it's an old book when we're even going to the section of this old book called the Old Testament, like the old part of the old book. But go there anyway. Second Chronicles, chapter 10 is where we're going to start. And we're going to look here, again, because we uh, think that this is worth seeing what God intends to bring about rather than try to bring about something new. If we just were to create something that would otherwise be like a you know, a fad. Well, fads change. Um, my wife actually was commenting to me very recently that <laughs> that certain things that were fashionable, like just, you know, clothes to wear, I think it was even like a style of jeans is specifically what she was talking about. She was saying, like, these are coming back in style, which, you know, and it was funny because it was like the type of things that were, that she said, you know, I, I wore these in high school, like 20 years ago. Uh, so things will go out of style and back in, and fads will change. Well, we're not here to give you a fad. We're here to see what, what God will bring about. Um, last week, we looked at the life of Solomon. We looked at the first, really, nine chapters. We bounced around a lot, but we saw uh, the life of, of Solomon. I want to give a little background information for what we're going to, to look at tonight. Uh, look back at, at the end of chapter 9 and verse 28. So Second Chronicles 9, 28. And there's a phrase here that I just want to point out to you because I think it kind of begins a pattern. So 2 Chronicles 9.28 says that horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all lands. There's a specific instruction that, the, uh, that God's people, the Israelites, received when they came up out of Egypt in the Exodus. And one of those instructions was... Don't go back to Egypt. And Solomon here, you can see pretty clearly, violates that command. He uh, goes back into Egypt, or he at least uh, has others go into Egypt for him, and they bring these horses, uh, which is actually a, a direct violation of 
a couple of different chapters. So if you want to compare uh, that with, for example, Deuteronomy 17 or Exodus 34, you can actually compare it. And, I don't want to spend time doing that tonight. It's, I don't think it's, it would get us to where we need to go. But you can, you can see how Solomon failed to lead his people in this area. And those failures set up a pattern for some of the things we're going to see tonight. So tonight we're actually going to look at two kings, two kings that followed Solomon. And then in each, for each one of those kings, I'm going to give you a statement, so two statements. And I want to try to convince you of those statements and try to convince you that those statements are more hopeful and more firm and more real than any other message you might hear in the world. And, and both of the statements have to do with the reality of God himself and the reality of his sovereignty. The reality that God does all that he pleases. So you could look ahead, and it's probably worth doing, look at chapter 10 and verse 15. Uh, this, this kind of summarizes everything that I want to say that I think is said in these chapters. So Chapter 10, verse 15, the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill his word. In other words, everything that this king did, everything that happens in these chapters was, by the way, for good or bad. Like we don't see every person in here obeying God. And yet, even in their disobedience, this statement is true of it. It was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill his word. So, here are, here's the first of the two statements, and it applies to the first king. Number one, God brings about the fulfillment of his word. God brings about the fulfillment of his word. So, I want to try to show you that and even convince you of that. And this statement is true of the life of King Rehoboam. Uh, last week, the very end of chapter 9, I think we read that uh, after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. And so at the beginning of chapter 10, you read about uh, Rehoboam uh, who goes, to be, uh, goes before all Israel to be anointed as king and there's another person in verse 2 whose name is Jeroboam. And you might think, well, maybe they're related, like their names kind of sound similar. They're not. In fact, as we see, these two are actually, will actually become enemies. But Rehoboam is about to become king in Israel. And verse 2 says that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it. And he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. And then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. So go ahead, skip ahead um, to chapter 13 and go to verse 6. So 13.6, this gives a little bit of summary. Again, there's more background. If you actually read 1 Kings 10 and 11, again, I don't want to take the time to do that tonight because I don't think it would get us where we need to go. But I want you to understand who these people are and what part they play. So 2 Chronicles 13.6 says that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, was a servant of Solomon, the son of David, and yet he rose up and rebelled against his Lord, and certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand him. So Jeroboam had been a servant of King Solomon who rebelled against Solomon and in his rebellion went down to Egypt which, again, as we've seen, is not 
necessarily a wise decision. But I'm going to summarize most of this and trust that you will either read it on your own or have read it on your own um, so, that, so that you know I'm not just twisting it. But uh, for the sake of time, I'm, I'm going to kind of summarize most of this. Jeroboam brings this crowd of people to Rehoboam and uh, says to Rehoboam, Hey, your father Solomon made our workload very heavy, and so we would like for you to lighten our workload. We still will serve you, but could you uh, kind of loosen some of the restraints that your father Solomon put on us? And you'd have to go back and actually read the way that Solomon made certain workers uh, essentially like slaves in Israel because of his tenacity with which he was building the temple and building his own palace. And so Jeroboam is basically saying, look, we, we served your father Solomon, uh, but, but, I mean, man, he was harsh toward us. Could you lighten the load for us and we will be loyal to you? So Rehoboam says, well, let me think about it. And so Rehoboam goes to some of the elders uh, who, who, who would have advised him, and the elders said, uh, look, if you do this good thing for the people and you please them and you speak well to them, they will serve you forever. They will be loyal to you. So their, their advice really is, yes, this is what they want. You should, you should uh, go along with it. And Rehoboam heard that, and then he sought the advice of another group, which we're told were a younger group of people who had grown up with him. So his, his peers, his friends... And uh, he said to these younger people, what do you advise? How do you advise me? What would you tell me to do? And the younger people's message to him basically was, uh, you should tell them that your father's workload was nothing compared to the workload you're going to put on them. Uh, he, he actually, some of this phrasing here is, is actually a little bit humorous. If you look down at verse 10, the end of verse 10, basically he says, tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Uh, the end of verse 11, my father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Tell them you'll, you'll be even more harsh to them than your father. And, and uh, we're, we're told that Rehoboam followed the advice of the younger crowd. And so he went back to Jeroboam and to all the crowd, and he told them this. And then that's where we run into that phrase in verse 15. The king did not listen to the people. King Rehoboam did not listen to the people. And yet it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill his word. So, was Rehoboam wise in his decision? No. Was God sovereign and in control anyway? Yes, he was. And, and so we see uh, how this is described later. You look at verse 16. All, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, and the people, the people then answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. And then go down to verse 19, the end of the chapter. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So you have basically a split where... Most of the people of Israel side with Jeroboam and say, we're not going to be, we're not going to be loyal to David's son, David's grandson, to the house of David. Um, you know, he, he didn't listen to us. And so Rehoboam, look at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 11, Rehoboam gathers all these troops and he's ready to fight. 
he assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against Israel. So Rehoboam says, look, you're going to rebel against me. Let's go. I've got these 180,000 troops. Let's go to war. Let's fight it out. Uh, if you're going to rebel against the, the house of David. Now, we're going to see a little bit later uh, <laughs> how, how foolish both of these men are, really. Uh, in Jeroboam's case, it was not wise to rebel against the house of David. And we'll see why here shortly. But Rehoboam, uh, of course, is also prideful and foolish. He's ready to fight, fight it out. But look at, look at verse 2. So chapter 11, verse 2. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God. So in chapter 10, we saw that the Lord is going to fulfill his word. Here, the word of the Lord is coming to this prophet. And, and he, uh, the prophet then is told by God, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin, Thus says the Lord, you should not go up and fight against your relatives. Return every man to his home, for this thing is for me. <laughs> God has to intervene between these two foolish kings and say, Look, <laughs> you're supposed to be on the same side. Don't fight each other. Don't go to war. And if you look at there, there at the end of verse 4, uh, they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and did not go against Jeroboam. So the word of the Lord actually prevented war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Instead, they, they have relative peace, but they decide to live in separate places. So verse 5, Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem. That's where uh, the temple had been built. That's where Solomon had reigned. And so that's where uh, he takes the throne there. If you look down at verse 12, you see that he put shields and spears in all the cities and made them very strong. And so he held Judah and Benjamin. How many, how many tribes uh, of Israel had there been? How many sons did Jacob have? You remember? Twelve. And how many here does Rehoboam rule over? Judah and Benjamin. So two. So the other ten now have rebelled against Rehoboam. Um, verse 13. The priests and the Levites who were all in Israel presented themselves, themselves to him, to Rehoboam, from all the places where they lived. Verse 14. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and the goat idols and for the calves that he had made. Uh, it's, it's almost like Jeroboam in Israel. And by the way, the, uh, the, the land that Jeroboam took over, that, be, that became known as Israel. That was the, they had the majority of the tribes. And Rehoboam's kingdom just simply became known as the kingdom of Judah. So that's why you see a differentiation there. But, but Jeroboam's land in Israel, it's almost like he is... Remember there was another character uh, previously in the Old Testament who had made these calves to be worshipped. He, he made them out of gold. Aaron, Moses' brother. Okay, It's almost like Jeroboam is falling into the same trap. He makes these calves and he sends away the priests of the Lord who should have helped the people worship the Lord. And uh, he appoints his own priests for these gods, these calves uh, and goat idols that he had made. 
And so, again, you see the foolishness here of, of Jeroboam. And yet, we know all this is happening so that the Lord can fulfill His word. Go down to chapter 12. You see how it's kind of going back and forth here between these two kings. Uh, so we're back here to Rehoboam now. So chapter 12, verse 1. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord. You could say he abandoned the word of God. He abandoned the scriptures. He abandoned the writings of Moses. And all Israel with him. Verse 2, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. So you notice, if you read closely there, you notice that as he abandoned the law of the Lord, he was unfaithful to the Lord himself. Which I think shows that anytime people turn away from God's word, they are actually turning away from God himself. And because he turns away from the Lord, the Lord raises up the king of what place? In verse 2 of Egypt. The place where, from, from where God had rescued Israel previously. The place where Solomon shouldn't have returned to get his horses. The place where Jeroboam shouldn't have fled to get away from Solomon. It's like the Lord is reversing uh, the saving grace that he had given to this nation before, saying, if you're unfaithful to my law, if you're unfaithful to my word, I'll send you back into exile in Egypt. Uh, if you go down to verse 5, Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah who'd gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak and said to them, Thus says the Lord, You abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. But then, verse 6, the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and they said, the Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord, here's, here's the word of God being active again, being fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them. I will grant them some deliverance. My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be servants to him that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. So this is all, I think, kind of interesting. Uh, Rehoboam abandons the word of God. God says, okay, you've abandoned me. I'll abandon you to, to Egypt. Rehoboam responds, the Lord is righteous. He humbles himself. And, and so the Lord comes back and says, okay, because you've humbled yourself, I won't let Egypt destroy you, but I will make you be their servants. And the irony of that is, uh, remember at the beginning what we read in chapter 10, Rehoboam was not willing to lighten the load of service on his people. So it's like the Lord is saying, hey, because you were harsh toward your servants, I will make you a servant of a king of another country. I will make you to know my service. And then you have this interesting phrase in... Uh, starting in verse 9. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem, and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. This king of Egypt comes into Jerusalem, comes into the house of the Lord, comes into the king's house, and begins to plunder everything that the king of Judah owns. Which, again, if you know the story of the Exodus, is the exact opposite of what happened when Israel came out of Egypt. Remember how Israel plundered the Egyptians and took from them 
all of their wealth. And here, because of Rehoboam's disobedience, the Lord is sending all of these goods back to Egypt. And the chapter concludes uh, in verse, um, verse 12. When he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him. Um, so, so he... He was at that time humbled, and yet, if you go down to verse uh, 13, um, sorry, 14, the summary statement of Rehoboam's life is that he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He did not set set his heart to seek the Lord. So, Rehoboam was strong, but he did not seek the Lord. And all this happened, it was brought about by the Lord, so that he might fulfill his word. Now, with that point, uh, let's, let's think about how this ultimately plays out and even would affect our lives. Uh, we could ask the question, how, how, does, how do we see, how have we seen, how does God's Word get fulfilled ultimately? If God does everything He does so that His Word might be fulfilled, how does His Word get fulfilled? Well, in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says... Um, as he's teaching the law, he says, look, I have not come to abolish the law, I have come to fulfill it. Meaning that the fulfillment of the Word of God is Jesus himself. Jesus came to fulfill everything that was written about him because it was all written about him. Jesus himself said that in, at the end of Luke. Uh, everything written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms is about me. So the Word of the Lord is fulfilled ultimately in the person of Jesus. And God brings it about. God brings about the fulfillment of his word. Here's number two. This one's much shorter. Number two. God brings about the victory of his kingdom. God brings about the victory of his kingdom. After Rehoboam died, another king reigned in his place, and it's his son Abijah. Uh, So chapter 13, Abijah began to reign in Judah. And then in the middle of verse 2, you read about war between Abijah, the king of Judah, and Jeroboam, who, remember, is the king of of Israel. Now, unlike Rehoboam, Abijah actually wants to avoid war. And so he gives this long speech. If you look at uh, chapter 13, verse 4, Abijah stood up on Mount Zemaraim, that is in the hill country of Ephraim, and and said... uh, Oh, Jeroboam and all Israel, ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons? The Lord gave this kingdom to David. I'm the son, grandson, great-grandson, I guess at this point, of David. Meaning that to oppose my kingdom is actually to oppose the kingdom of the Lord. In fact, that's, he says as much down there in verse 8. Chapter 13, verse 8. Now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David? He wants Jeroboam to realize, look, you're not just opposing my kingdom, you're opposing the kingdom of the Lord. And so he's pleading with Jeroboam to, to not follow through with this battle. And he, and he, he speaks to Jeroboam, uh, pointing out to him, look, you've driven out the Lord's priests. You have forsaken the Lord. We're the ones now who have your priests, and we are keeping the charge of God. 
And apparently, even while he's giving this speech, if you skip down to verse, uh, go down to verse 12, actually. See, see how this speech ends, verse 12. The last thing Abijah says to Jeroboam is, Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call of battle against you, O sons of Israel. So do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. You cannot succeed if you fight against God, he tells them. But apparently, while he's giving this speech, verse 13, Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come upon them from behind. And thus his troops were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. So it, it seems as though this is going to be a sure defeat for Abijah and for the nation of Judah. And yet, as a friend of mine uh, pointed out, uh, he, he said, throughout the Bible we see God stacking the odds against him, himself just to show off. Because in a lot of places in Scripture, you see uh, things that look like sure defeat and yet victory come out of them. So, verse 14, when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front of and behind them. And so what did they do? They cried to the Lord, and the priests blew the trumpets, and the men of Judah raised the battle shout. And when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. Who defeated Jeroboam? God did. God defeated him. Uh, verse 16, you, so this is repeated in a few different ways. Verse 16, uh, God gave them into their hand. Verse 18 says, uh, The men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. Verse 20, in speaking about the, the death of Jeroboam, you see that it was the Lord who struck him down. God defeated Jeroboam to show that whoever opposes the kingdom of the sons of David opposes the kingdom of the Lord himself. And as you said, God's victories always seem to come about through what seems like sure defeat. And this is, this, this, again, there's no clearer place of this in Scripture than at the cross, Right? Jesus himself faced what would seem like ultimate defeat. He was put to death. And yet God turned what seemed like sure defeat into victory by raising him from the dead. And so maybe you say, maybe you ask, well, how can I be on the side of victory? How, how can I be on the Lord's side? How can, how can I be a part of the kingdom of God? Well, the answer is not... Buy into the world's message. You know, the world's telling you, believe in yourself. Put your heart into it. You do you. You know, they'll say. The answer is, as Jesus put it, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Believe that what Christ has done can count for you if you'll only come to him. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from the world's message of trying to find satisfaction. Because it doesn't work. It's not there. It doesn't satisfy. Uh, this old message is the one that satisfied. This old message that for about a decade now I've been able to speak to students and I get two more months to do it. This old message is more satisfying than what the world will try to sell you. God brings it about. Even the things that seem to us to be 
evil, God brings them about for good to fulfill his word. God brings it about. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even when even when kings of nations do things that seem to oppose your standard, your word, your character, your people, that you are the one bringing it about to fulfill your word, to bring about the fall of those nations and the victory of your kingdom. I pray you would make us loyal to Jesus, the son of David. Um, that we would submit to him and to his calling more than we submit to the messages that the world would try to sell us. So give us wisdom on how best to do that. Help us as we um, attempt to respond in worship to you now through this song and then also through the discussions we're going to have in small groups that we might know how to apply these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.